Now, just set the stage if you weren't here. An angel talked to Philip after the big revival in Samaria, told him to go to Gaza on a road, a desert road, and he ends up finding this Ethiopian eunuch who's reading Isaiah 53, 7 and 8 from the scroll. And so this is an amazing encounter. And he had been in Jerusalem to worship, so he's a God-fearing Gentile. Last week we also mentioned that in the ancient world, at this time, they considered Ethiopia, quote, the end of the earth. So we link that to Acts 1-8, which is programmatic for Acts. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the end of the earth. So this one fellow hearing the gospel is going to bring the gospel to the end of the earth. Verses 34 and 35 now. The eunuch answered Philip and said, Please tell me, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. So here was the opening in God's providence for the gospel. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that we can gather on this beautiful Sunday together as your redeemed ones and open the scriptures and read and learn and encourage one another. Help us to believe your promises and trust you in all things. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Okay, so remember, Philip had asked him, do you understand what you're reading? And he says, well, how can I unless somebody guides me? So now he asks a specific question. And his question was based on common things that the Jews had said. Who was he speaking of? Of course, this is about the suffering servant. And uh, some said the suffering servant was Isaiah. Some said it was Israel. But according to our best scholarly sources, at the time of this, of the book of Acts and the Gospels, there was no major group of the Jews that believed that Messiah would be a suffering servant. They never really got that part of it. And I read quite a few scholarly sources and commentaries. They just didn't think Messiah would be a suffering servant. They believed he'd be a conquering king. He was going to be the son of David and the son of God. And he was going to restore Israel to her former glory. They believed that part of it. But they did not totally understand the suffering servant. So this person, who is a God-fearing Gentile, must have heard some of those ideas. And so he said, well, who is this about? Imagine God's providence here. That he's reading Isaiah 53, 
which is messianic. He's reading about the suffering servant, which is central to the Christian gospel. And he'd heard wrong things about it. And he's asking just the right person who could answer that. And that would be Philip, who had been evangelizing Samaria. So what Philip does is he preached Christ. The word for preach there, euangelizo, it's a word that we should be familiar with. I've talked about it many times. Gospeled. He preached the gospel. And so, in obedience to the Lord who sent forth his disciples to preach the gospel, Philip was an associate of the apostles. He preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, we may have introduced this, but Eric, could you read Isaiah 56, 6 and 7 and comment on it? Isaiah 56, 6 through 7, it says, And the foreigner, foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of Yahweh, and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it, and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Yeah, very interesting. Um, so here we see that even those who are eunuchs, not Enochs, and those who are far off, they'll be brought near. And what pleases God isn't whether you're Jew or Gentile. What actually pleases them is faith and obedience. It's very interesting is in Isaiah 1, God had given a rebuke to Israel. He says, I'm sick of your fatted calves. I'm sick of your sacrifices. They're abhorrent to me. And these are things that God commanded. And yet here he's saying that these types of sacrifices will be acceptable from Gentiles. What's the difference if you come in faith? And that's the idea that the Gentile who comes in faith, he'll be received. It doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile. Amen. So that was in the Old Testament. Exactly. Now it's fulfilled. And so Jesus quoted this verse, didn't he? I also be a house of prayer. Remember when that happened? Yeah, for all nations, yeah. Yeah, yeah when he cleansed the temple. Yeah. So Jesus cited this and uh, rebuked Israel for not welcoming all nations to come and worship God. Dr. Longenecker says this, in the whole Jewish Messianic literature of the Tanaitic period, there is no trace of the suffering Messiah. A doctrine of a suffering Messiah was unheard of and considered unthinkable in first century Jewish religious circles generally. So, Jesus came and suffered, and they were offended. But it's not because the Bible didn't predict it. The very scripture this Ethiopian was reading predicted a suffering Messiah. The Bible is true in everything it affirms. God inspired the Bible. God cannot lie. Jesus was the suffering Messiah, prophesied in the Old Testament. One of the things we learn here is that we need a hunger for the truth. 
and a love for the truth. If God gives you, by his grace, a love for the truth, that is a magnificent gift. Because as fallen humans, we tend to be ruled by our prejudices. And we tend to be tribal. By tribal, I mean our first thought is we're right because we're us. Do you see what I mean? Defend the home turf. So this is what we are, so we got to be right. So anything that God said in Scripture that doesn't fit with our traditions, our first inclination is to fight it. And I've seen somebody, some people that I love and knew over the years, fight viciously against things that were obviously biblically true. And become so angry that they just become red in the face and apoplectic. And, for example, the doctrine of election. Nobody taught me that either when I was in Bible college, and I didn't believe it. But when I started teaching Romans, I ran into the doctrine, and I had a crisis. Am I going to believe what the Bible says or what I've always been told? And so I just had to teach the Bible for what it said. Because if I don't teach the Bible for what it says, I'm failing God. Mike for Luann. I see you got a new job, Eric. I just wanted to say that last week you uh, said something that was really helpful helpful for me during the week. But in this case, you know, the eunuch was reading scripture and, you know, he himself, the Lord had opened his heart. He just didn't understand it. And for a lot of us, when we leave here, we want to share too, but we go out into a pagan society that doesn't want to hear it. And it's, you know, you have this struggle within you because you do want to share, but nobody wants to hear your message. And so, um, you know, you had kind of made the comment even through your CICs that, you know, you have to look for those people whose hearts are seeking that truth that really want to know the truth. Right. Because, you know, otherwise you're so discouraged week after week going into your pagan work environments or wherever, and they don't care. They don't want to hear it. Well, the people that email me, that's kind of how it shakes out. I send some truth and I see what kind of response I get. And if they want to learn, I spend time with them. And I, and I start answering every question. If they just get mad and they want me to tell them what they already heard, heard or believed, I go on. I just say, okay, here's the article I wrote. You can read it. See what you think. Yes. Um, you know, what was it, the last election? I got really, really frustrated and down on Facebook dealing with atheist relatives and friends on Facebook about this, you know, stuff that matters to anybody that has a Christian worldview. And I, got, I just got so frustrated. I, 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 I just prayed. I said, Lord, I, I, need, I need something else. I, I need, I, if you want me to... Um, tell people about the gospel or the Bible or anything. I, I need at least something 
where I know people are interested. So I, you know, I, I prayed about it, basically, is what I'm getting at. I prayed about it. And the Lord, that's when the Lord opened up the whole thing with uh, the Sri Lankan Bible study. And I just started pouring myself into that. And I don't even, I'm, my atheist cousin unfriended me on Facebook, I don't know how many years ago, anyway. <laughs> so, you know, I guess all I'm saying is, you know, when you're really frustrated about something, go to the Lord and pray about it and pray about opportunities because, you know, they won't necessarily be easy, but at least, you know, there'll be something more to it. And um, that's, that's my two cents. Yeah. If, if somebody has a hunger to learn, elsewhere later in Acts, remember they said, well, we'll go to the Gentiles because they'll listen. Some did, not all of them. Here's the issue. Nobody believes in a suffering Messiah amongst the Jews that we know about. But yet Jesus sent his apostles out to preach a suffering Messiah. A Messiah who's rejected and dies, but yet is raised from the dead. They didn't do a marketing survey and they went into the synagogues and preached it. The truth is the truth is the truth, and it doesn't change. Because God is the truth. He speaks the truth. You see in John 8 a, a, a really interesting interchange about this, where Jesus preached the truth and they wanted to kill him. Dear saints, we are called by God to preach the truth. And the one thing I do concern myself with is study the text. Study it more than anybody would expect you to study it. Dig into everything. Learn everything you can about the text so that when you preach it, somebody may be very well angry with me because they don't like what I'm saying. But if they come and I didn't understand the text... That's me. That's my problem. If I get the text wrong, I want you to do that. Correct me if I have a bad reading. But if you're mad because you don't like what the Bible says, I don't know how to fix that. Okay? And that happens even amongst people that we know. Well, you can't preach that. Well, here it is. What am I supposed to preach? So for us, we want to be equipped so that we know the truth and we can defend it from scripture and we, we can be kind loving, accessible teachable but the scripture is never going to change it just isn't because God doesn't change and he inspired it and we can always learn something yes thanks Bob well, I was just going to mention on my way in there's a guy that sits up on the bench up there every single Sunday and I thought, I'm going to talk to him today. So on the way in, I said, hey, what are you doing? <laughs> he said, just sitting on the bench. And I said, well, you know what? You want to come on down and hear some gospel? And he said, I'm an atheist. And I said, well, you know what? That doesn't have to stop you. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll keep talking to him. Amen. So here was a man 
unlikely as he was, perpetually unclean, no way to be fully a part of Israel's worship because he was banned from being, because he was a eunuch. We saw that in Deuteronomy 25. And he was a foreigner. But he's reading a scripture and he has a hunger for the truth. Please tell me, who is this about? So Philip preaches Christ. Every once in a while you get a chance to do that because somebody really does want to know. Isn't that great? When people do want to know and you're prepared and you're willing, willing and ready to preach Christ. Now, where's the mic at the moment? Go, um, who has their Bible open, ready to go? Somebody, uh, 2 Thessalonians 2.10. I need a reader. 2 Thessalonians 2.10. Nobody? All right, go for it. I got the mic too, so. Perfect. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 10. And with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. Yeah, it's interesting. uh, Receive there means welcome. They didn't welcome the love of the truth. If we believe the word of God and we believe the one whom the Father sent, Messiah, we will hear the truth. And are we going to welcome and the love of the truth as a gift from God or are we going to get angry about it? Eric, when you taught in Canada about grace alone... You referenced a section in John 6, long about 65. Could you look that up and tell us what happened (laughs) and why that would be an appropriate passage concerning the love for the truth? Now, remember, in John 6, Eric was preaching on grace alone in Weyburn, Saskatchewan, Canada. It was a fantastic message. Now... John 6, Jesus multiplied the bread. He walked on water. So many people were chasing after him. They wanted to make him king, right? And then he kept preaching. And pretty soon they got angry, and they wouldn't listen to him, and they didn't like what he was saying. So talk about it, Eric. Yeah, so remember the famous verse we often cite, John six forty four: no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. Well, that's offensive to these wider group of disciples. So it's not just the 12 that Jesus is addressing, but there's a wider group that's walking with him. And in John 6, 64, it says, But there are some of you who do not believe, he says, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. Verse 65 of John 6, it says, And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted, literally diddle me in the Greek, given to them. Give them as a gift. Yeah, yeah it's a gift uh, by the Father. And then notice the very next verse now, verse 66. It says, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So after Jesus teaches the doctrine of grace, that you can only be saved by the power of God, what happens is these people are offended by it. And so what offends people is the doctrine of grace. That's a conclusion that we can come to. It's offensive 
that salvation is only yeah, of God. grace alone, grace alone, which is one of the most important Reformation doctrines that caused Rome to anathematize all of us. If you say grace alone, you're anathema, according to Trent. And when Jesus taught grace alone, he lost his followers. See, our prejudice is we believe in human ability. And Americans really believe in human ability. I can do it on my own. Just give me a little leg up and I can solve all my own problems. I can create my own religion. I can be successful. And Jesus said, no. Unless it's granted by the Father, it's not going to happen. Well, then we're not going to listen to you anymore. Do you think Joel Osteen teaches that? I say that because this morning I was trying to find the Ryder Cup to put it on the DVR. And I, got, I went to the right channel, and the only preacher on that channel was Joel Osteen. And see, false teaching it makes enough money to buy time on network TV. Because he doesn't teach what Jesus said. Grace alone is happy life. Keep smiling and be happy. That'll save you being happy, right? Yes, Lonnie. Yeah, I just, um, I was witnessing at work to this uh, one guy who, well, I think he was a former Catholic at one time, uh, but he's been to other churches and that, and, and of course he's, you know, obviously not a believer but I talked to him about the, uh, it's all about grace. It's just grace, believing in Christ. And and uh, he told me, well, that's that's very arrogant when when you say that. Arrogant? Yeah. He said no, it's it very humbles arrogant us. No, to no, say that. no, it's not arrogant. It means I don't have anything to offer God. Right seems to think that you have to do some kind of work or something like that. Well, how's that, that not here? merit heaven. I worked enough, now God grace. needs me. Hmm? Once you realize God doesn't need you, he only saves you because he's a right. merciful God. Right. God be merciful to me, but a sinner. Yeah, that's what, that's what, what they think. You uh, know, well, I know. You're being it's arrogant. blinded minds by Satan. Yeah. I told you this story. One of our first converts in a coffee house we had in 1972, Sheldon, Iowa, went to the street corner, the four corners where everybody drove the cars around to see who had a new car and who had a new girlfriend. <laughs> Anybody relate to that? Around <laughs> and around they went. And then these teenage boys were sitting on the corner, which, one of which was my younger brother. And when Diane and I went out, we had a coffee house, kitty corner across underneath the corner drugstore. And we were new Christians. We went out with tracks, and we were saying, uh, hey, we got this uh, coffee house, and we're going to tell people about Jesus Christ. You're invited. They started mocking us. They literally started singing Rock of Ages in a mocking tone. And we said, well... If you want to come over, we're right over here. So Diane and I 
That was the summer we got married. Went across the street, went down, invited a few more people, went down. Pretty soon here comes my brother Wayne. He was one of the teenagers. And he came down and came to the Lord. And he was an elder, remember? You know my brother Wayne, plays bass, was in the band. He, he loves the Lord He's, to this day. You don't know who it is out of this group. And I got to tell you, as an older brother before I was saved, I did not do one thing to endear myself to Wayne. <laughs> I told my mom that, and she agreed. <laughs> I was a mean older brother till I got saved. Go ahead. Yeah, I um, obviously, you know, I'm not a theologian or anything. I think back on my own life, and I try to, you know, reconcile Scripture. And I've talked to people who firmly believe that they say, wait a minute, this doctrine of election and grace alone, well, what about the individual's responsibility to actually confess Christ with their mouth and believe in their heart that he was risen from the dead? And and, and I can't, I, I have a hard time, you know, explaining the tension between those two ideas, and that, that there is some individual responsibility, but God elects us. There, I there's think, a, yeah, there's a universal call. Yeah. And um, so it is difficult to explain it to people. Well, and that's where we need to, to be good at. As, well, uh, it's not that difficult in my mind. You preach the universal call and you literally command people to repent and believe the gospel. And if they do, it's because God's grace was at work. But I don't control grace. I just know how God promised to work. God has chosen the foolishness of the message preached to save those who will believe. And I don't have to philosophically feel good in my own mind that everything about God, I have it all figured out. I just need to know what he said and what he commanded me to do. And so I preach, repent, and believe the gospel, come to Christ, here's who he is, here's what he did, here's why you need him, preach the whole thing. And somebody comes, who gets the glory? Jesus Christ, God. To the glory of God alone. Another doctrine we had up in Canada. Let's keep moving here. Acts 8 36 and 38, I can't ask you to bring these back for a third week. <laughs> then they'll all be lost. <laughs> so here he's preaching Christ to an Ethiopian out on a desert road. And as they went along the road, they came to some water. That's another providential work. There wasn't a lot of water out there. And the eunuch said, look, water. What prevents me from being baptized? Now, there's a verse 37 in the King James that was in some of the Greek texts, but the evidence suggests that it was added by later scribes. So uh, I did not put it on there. And this is what Philip actually said, I believe. What prevents me from being baptized? Well, implied answer, nothing. And he ordered the chariot to stop, 
and they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. That's funny, I, I thought they would just get a little vial of holy water and sprinkle it on him. <laughs> if I keep talking enough, I'll get in trouble with somebody. <laughs> no, anyhow, why did they both go down in the water? Well, because to be baptized is to be immersed. So here's a man believed the preaching of Christ and wanted to be baptized. My brother Wayne came to Christ uh, on a weekend. The next Thursday he was baptized. And the year before I'd come to Christ and uh, the pastor said, well, you need to be baptized. And I said, well, I was baptized as a baby. I probably told this story before, but anyhow... He said, well, I'm not going to tell you what to do, but you better do whatever the Bible says. I said, well, I don't know the Bible. How can I do what it says? Well, he said, why don't you just read? He said, I said, what should I read? He said, read Acts. Before that, I'd only read John. So I started reading Acts, and I got into Acts 2, and the people were baptized. And I came back to the pastor and said, all right, I want to be baptized. So I was. And uh, not just me, Diane, my wife now, and her parents and her brother, we were all baptized in the same little Pentecostal church. And uh, her dad has had an awful lot of cancer. It's kind of toward the end of his life. And he's asked me to speak at the memorial service, which will be in that church where we were baptized. And I relished the opportunity to share the gospel about how God used people from my father-in-law. So he had come to the Lord just before I did. So you don't know what God's going to do, do you? Go ahead. I was just going to ask you a question, Bob. You know, it's interesting. Every time I've read this text, I always wondered, how does Philip know about baptism? You know, it's either from his back backdrop, his background, or it's from the preaching here. You mean, you mean Philip or the... Ethiopian? I'm sorry, the, the eunuch, the Ethiopian eunuch. I, you know, I'm, I thought about that myself. Yeah. Well, if you think about what Jesus said and that baptism in Matthew is part of the Great Commission, yeah. right? So it could very well be that Philip preached, repent, and be baptized. That, that's what I was assuming. It's, yeah, it's part I think of the that's a reasonable message. assumption. Yeah. Repent and be baptized. And uh, we don't believe in baptismal regeneration. We're saved by grace through faith. But people who believe are to be baptized. That's a means of grace. And people... And not this, what's the Catholic phrase in Latin? Oh, yeah, ex opere operato. Yeah. Which means? By the act done. By the act done. You do the work, that solves the problem. We don't believe that. But why would baptism be important? You find it in Acts 2. That's why I was baptized, because it was right there in the Bible. Because God is giving us something to remember. You're going to preach on this. Yep. 
next week we'll have a topical message on baptism. But yeah. even today. And today we're going to be alluding to it exactly. Yeah, right. That's right. So we're going to be on the same page here. Eric's preaching in Romans 6, that's right? right. Yeah. Paul uses baptism to teach spiritual truth to the church. You were baptized, so you must be dead. He buried the old man, right? So it's something to remember. Remembering is important. The Lord's Supper is remembering the Lord's death till he comes. It's something to remember so that we know that we died to the world, came alive to Christ. I was going to quote Dr. Polhill. The verb indicates that barriers had been removed hindrance to the spread of the gospel to all people. In this case, a double barrier of both physical and racial prejudice had fallen. A eunuch, a Gentile, a black, was baptized and received into full membership in the people of Jesus Christ. So here the gospel already went to the end of the earth. As I told you last week, this pericope really drove home to me the importance of one person. One person. That when I'm, out of all the people who read these articles, if I spend time with one person, God is using that. Because every one person has a whole lot of influence. So don't be discouraged at small numbers. Preach the gospel. Acts 8.39. When they came up out of the water, well, they must have gone down into it. The Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and the eunuch no longer saw him, but went on his way rejoicing. Snatched away. What's that all about? Well, we have here an allusion to prophets in the Old Testament. We've already seen an angel directing Philip. We have already seen the Holy Spirit guiding him. And now we have the Spirit snatching him away. So if someone could look up 1 Kings 18.12, Brian Beers, could you look that one up? And then, Norm, if you could look up Ezekiel 3.14. Go ahead. 1 Kings 18.12. It will come about when I leave you that the Spirit of the Lord will carry you where I do not know. So when I come and tell Ahab and he cannot find you, he will kill me, though I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. Will carry you from where I do not see you. Yeah, you do not see me. That's right. Ezekiel 3.14. So the Spirit lifted me up and took me away, and I went embittered in the rage of my spirit, and the hand of the Lord was strong on me. So the prophets in the Old Testament had been snatched away, so this also happens to Philip. So we see as Old Testament prophecy is being fulfilled through Messiah 
and his apostles. And as the gospel is going to the end of the earth, the people on the scene of history have things going on that are reminiscent of the Old Testament prophets. This is unique to the people here in Acts. A lot of modern-day evangelists and preachers are claiming they're doing the same thing. They can do anything any of the apostles did, and they even claim they can do greater miracles than Jesus did. Okay? I wrote an article about that. We had some of them out there a while ago. Well, here's the problem. The miracles in the Bible prove, for example, that Jesus is the Messiah. And they're given as evidence that he is who he claimed to be, the son of David, the son of God, the Jewish Messiah. Now, somebody like this Bill Johnson in Redding, California, who claims he can do greater miracles than Jesus ever did, well, then why doesn't he claim to be the Messiah? If anybody can do these things, there's nothing unique about Jesus. And if there's nothing unique about Jesus, then all the preaching of the apostles was false. The Bible claims that Jesus was unique. And these false teachers like Bill Johnson actually say Jesus lost his divinity or gave it up. Well, then God doesn't cease being God. That's the very nature of I am. I am that I am. So this Bill Johnson is a heretic, and I call him that. He blasphemes Christ. He has all these followers. Saints, we can't just listen to anybody and think we're going to be okay spiritually. We need to use discernment. Now, this is something God did uniquely with prophets in the Old Testament like Elijah and Ezekiel and with Philip who spoke for God in Acts but it isn't just some ordinary thing that we can do if we have enough faith if you want to go to the Vikings game you're going to have to get on the train or drive your car you're not going to get snatched Let's talk about the joy of the Lord. But before that, I got one more I want to do. Turn with me. Let's all turn to this. Luke 8, 38, 39. This is the, remember Luke Acts is a two-volume work. And this is the story of the gathering who was full of demons. And Jesus healed him. But the man from whom the demons had gone out was begging him that he might accompany him, but he sent him away, saying, Return to your house and describe what great things God has done for you. So he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. Everybody knew who this guy was. He was a maniac. He was chained up in a cemetery, out of his mind, controlled by demons. Jesus totally delivered him and saved him. He wanted to follow Jesus, but Jesus sent him back. God will use that one person 
and this was Gentile territory. So even before the Ethiopian in Luke X, somebody was sent into Gentile territory. The gathering healed, is preaching Christ. The Ethiopian saved, goes home to preach Christ. But he goes rejoicing. Now in Luke Acts, frankly in the whole Bible, joy is associated with salvation. The joy of the Lord is your strength. When people are saved, they rejoice. So what are we rejoicing? Let's look up a few of these. I'll just start working my way around here. <laughs> Eric, on the back with the mic. Luke ten twenty. Noel, Luke fifteen seven. Dan, Luke fifteen thirty two. Are, you, are we ready? Go okay. for it. Uh, this is Luke ten, verse twenty. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. Amen. Amen. So what are we supposed to rejoice about? Your names are recorded in heaven. Salvation. Don't rejoice that you have power. That's a trap. Everybody's looking for a man of power, the anointed one. The only anointed one is Christ. What we have is what he did for us. Noel, Luke 15, 7. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. More joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. Do you believe that? I believe it. We should rejoice in salvation. Not how popular we are, how big we are, how rich we are, how much influence we have. (coughs) We should rejoice that there are some names in heaven and ours are among them. Do you rejoice in that? I hope we all do. Yes, Dan. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. That was the prodigal. Remember the older brother? They killed the fatted calf They had a big party for the repentant sinner, and this guy was bitter about it. How many of you know God doesn't need our permission or decision about who he's going to save? He saves who he saves through the gospel. Now, there are many other verses. Uh, Eric, could you look up Psalm 13, 5? Let's do some Old Testament. Yeah. And uh, Nancy, do you want to do one? Sure. Isaiah 61, 10. Just give you a little sampling of how often this is said. In any particular order, it's fine. Nancy has Isaiah 61.10. Isaiah 61.10. I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland 
and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Amen. We rejoice because of what God did for us. That's why we have joy. Eric Dalma. Psalm 13:5. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. And he goes on to sing, I will sing to Yahweh. I will rejoice in your salvation. There are so many songs that can be written and have been about the joy of salvation. And so that's what we need to rejoice about. And just a reminder, it's all about what God has done for us, not what we think we're going to do for God. It's what God does for us. So what does Philip do? He goes and preaches the gospel. Acts 8.40. But Philip found himself. Remember, spirit snatched him away. He finds himself somewhere. Azotus, and as he passed through, he kept preaching the gospel to all the cities until he came to Caesarea. This is Ashdod of the Old Testament. Now, I hope we're learning how to read. God is sovereignly spreading the gospel throughout the world, as he promised in Acts 1.8. The resurrected Christ sent forth his preachers. He poured out his spirit. Joel is cited where it said, your sons and daughters will prophesy. And that's exactly what happens. And Philip, we don't hear about again until we hear about his daughters in Acts 21, 8. Acts 21, 8. Brian Beers, could you look up Acts 21, 8? On the next day, we left and came to Caesarea, and entering the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, we stayed with him. Is that it? 21, 8? Try 9. I had the wrong thing, Dan. Yeah. Do you want me to keep Keep reading? Okay. Now this man had four virgin daughters who were prophetesses. As they were staying there for some days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and and, and bound his own feet and hands and said, This is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Okay. So... The point was Philip's daughters. Now, what we're learning to do is learn how to read. Early in Acts, Joel is cited, and what does it say? Your sons and daughters will prophesy. When we get to Acts 21, 8, Philip's daughters prophesy. So there's Joel being fulfilled literally in Acts. Isn't it Joel 2.32? I think it's 2.32. Any comments on that? Yes. I'll, I'll just, uh, just because we got a little time, uh, this is not a well-thought-out comment. It's really a question, actually. So your sons and daughters will prophesy, and I know that uh, there's a lot of debate and discussion about current times. You know, do we have prophets do we have people that prophesy? And, uh, you know, there's a lot of passion that people talk about on both sides. Maybe you could address that a little bit. Yes. 
I wrote an article about that in CIC years ago. Uh, I'm agreeing with Luther and uh, others that I cited in my article. I think the prophesying there is not an office in a, ch- in a church, but it's what's referenced in 1 Corinthians 14, where it said you may all prophesy one by one, but by the most two or three, and let the others judge. I, I think I cited some of this when I was up in Canada on the priesthood of every believer. Prophecy is what Luther considered gospel preaching. All right? Pre- speaking forth the mighty deeds of God. What God did in Messiah. And it doesn't necessarily mean, nor does it in these cases, giving new revelations. So as we believe in Scripture alone, sola scriptura, and we believe in the priesthood of every believer, and we believe that Joel is fulfilled, then we believe that your sons and daughters will prophesy means everyone has the Holy Spirit who is born of God. Everyone can speak forth gospel truth and if it's true it's binding because it is gospel truth but if it's wrong it needs to be judged that's what Luther said and I quoted him to that end when I was up in Canada and so this class here for our church is where there's opportunities for that to happen in the sermon, we have one preacher. It's usually either Eric or I or somebody. But we may all prophesy, and this is what we're doing. We're bringing out valid implications, applications of Scripture. That was the Reformation doctrine. And I think it's a biblical doctrine. And I think that's what Acts is talking about. So when Philip preached Christ to the Ethiopian, he was prophesying. We don't know the content of what his daughters preached, but it said they were prophesying. Now, sometimes functional terminology appears that confuses us if we don't understand the author's intent. In the Greek, the term prophet can be used as a noun to describe (coughs) the participle prophesying one. The prophesying one, or the one who prophesies as a verb, is called a prophet, not meaning they're Elijah or Ezekiel or somebody like that, but they're speaking forth the mighty works of God. Now, that's what Luther said. I quoted him a lot to that end. And I think he's right biblically. Uh, In the Lord's Supper, we proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. And we speak forth the mighty deeds of God. Go ahead, Eric. um, Just another passage that came to my mind was Ephesians 2.20. 
talking about whether or not prophets continue to this day. And think about Ephesians 2.20 where Paul says that the church has been built. It's an aorist, so it's past tense. The church has been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. So within that building metaphor, obviously you only have one foundation. You only have one Christ, and you only have one set of apostles and prophets, and that's been laid. Well, then the rest of the church is built upon it. So you can't have multiple foundations of apostles and prophets. That's already been laid. So that's a great proof text that shows that prophets are not, in fact, still developing here today. Now, what's interesting also in Ephesians 2.20 is Paul, I think, intends not apostles and prophets in the sense of, well, the apostles and then prophets like Isaiah, but apostles and prophets of the New Testament era. So, for example, Mark was not an apostle, but because he's so closely associated with the apostles like Peter, he would be a prophet under apostolic authority. Right. So even the prophets are linked to the apostolic authority. And so when the apostolic authority is off the scene, ergo, the foundation has been laid. Therefore, you can't have modern-day apostles and prophets. Yeah. So, yep. so that's how we've been teaching this for years, and I'm prepared to defend it. And this doesn't mean you have women pastors. It doesn't require that. We believe that elders... Pastors are men are to be men who are qualified, but it doesn't mean you can't. Paul turned around and said, "But you may all prophesy one by one, and let the others judge." And then Luther's proof text was in Peter that we are a kingdom of priests that we might declare the marvelous deeds of God, and that's not restricted to males. And so when Paul says, let the prophets speak two by three, or two or three, that's functional terminology. It doesn't mean let Elijah and Ezekiel speak, because he's not turning the Corinthian church over to new revelation, but you may speak forth. So in Sunday school, we, if people have something to say that they believe is a gospel or valid biblical implication, they get the mic and they speak, but the others judge. And we've had to judge before, haven't we? If you've been here for a while. Sometimes we just go, well, I don't know about that one. So, yeah, you have to do that. But that's what it says. And so we don't say only men can get the mic. There's a woman right there, ready to speak. Let me get you the mic, though. Hold on. Not to change the subject, but, um, and you explained this in a Bible class once before when I asked you, you know, you say like the Lord's Supper and baptism are a means of grace. Yes. Well, I just can't quite get that through my head. I know that grace is unmerited, undeserved, is God giving heaven to sinful beings who deserve just the opposite. Yep. So it's not something you eat or drink. It's not something you do. It's just God's mercy. So How can how, there be means? Yeah, how, what, what, what do you mean by means? Well, uh, let me just explain it with salvation. Salvation is by grace through faith, right? Right. But God has chosen the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe, Mm -hmm. right? Right. 
The message preached is a means. Okay. That God chose to use. Okay. So hyper-Calvinism says God's going to save all the elect, so we don't need to do anything. Or you become introspective. Everybody sits and waits to see if they have signs of election. And then they never know if they're saved or not. I don't know if I have signs of election. Mm -hmm. I consider that hyper-Calvinism. We believe God uses the means of the gospel preached. It doesn't mean that God isn't capable of saving people sovereignly, which he certainly is and does, Mm -hmm. but he's commanded us to preach. That's means. Mm -hmm. It doesn't negate negate, uh, grace. Now, when it comes to our sanctification and growth and perseverance in the faith, he also uses means. But the means are not works. I wrote an article about this, and I identified three things that are true of means of grace. Number one, the command of God. God commands us to do it. All right? Number two, the promise of God. Do this and I will meet you. But the third one's really important, otherwise you get off track, end up with this ex opere operato. Accessibility. Accessibility. Okay? Anything that God gives as a means has to be accessible to everybody. You don't have to be some spiritual elite. So when we all gather, that's why Eric preached on the Lord's Supper, wait for one another. Mm-hmm. What was wrong? The false practice in Corinth was making the Lord's Supper not accessible to some. Mm-hmm. Now, what has that got to do with grace? God said, do this in remembrance of me through Christ. So we remember the Lord's death until he comes. And that, kind of draws us and that keeps us gospel-centered and Christ-centered. So he saved us through the gospel, and he keeps us through the gospel. And this is not magical mystery. It's simply God working the way he's promised that he would. And it's by faith. Does that make sense? Well said. Okay. Mm -hmm. I wrote an article about this. And so I know some people have been Lutheran in their past and Mm -hmm. were taught more of a mechanical version of it. Yeah. Yeah. So you show up and you do the liturgy and then that's all it takes. But even Luther wouldn't say that, but that's what it turned into. Showing up and doing the liturgy won't save you. You've got to believe the gospel. All right. Good question. Very good question. All right, so Eric's going to preach on Romans 6. Next week I'm going to preach on 1 John 2, I think 24 through 26, something like that. I'm so immersed in 1 John, I can't remember what verse I'm going to preach because i got pages of Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your kindness and your grace and your mercy. Be with Eric as he preaches the word of God to us. May we hear, hear, listen, believe, and obey by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.